I've observed a few things about sprinting at the Olympic level uh, from watching my daughter run these many years. Been able to observe some things. I tried not to get involved in her track life at all. Uh, believe it or not, I never ever went to one of her practices. I didn't want to be one of those fathers who was on the sideline trying to tell the coach what to do. But just watching her year after year, month after month, there are some things that I've observed about those who are Olympic caliber sprinters. I'm not talking about those who run those long distances. I'm talking about those who run the short distances. One thing is your training regimen is crucial. Uh, sometimes, uh, if you're not familiar with uh, track and fields, you just think that people just get up out of the bed and they run. Uh, kind of like what we used to do when we were smaller and younger and be at school and people want to race and you just race. Uh, one thing that I've learned at the elite sprinter level is that you have to have a real training program. Uh, you have to train week after week, day after day, month after month, year after year. And I also learned that uh, eating habits matter. You know, I believe that even though I remember back in 2004 when we went to our first Olympic, uh, there was a certain man who just finished winning the gold medal in the 200 meters. And uh, no, when the whole uh, event that night was over, uh, we went and stopped at uh, McDonald's of all the places. Uh, we had an elaborate meal <laughs> at McDonald's, and uh, McDonald's uh, was closing. And all of a sudden, uh, somebody was tapping on the window. And this guy who had just won the gold medal in the 200 meters was tapping on the window, wanting to get into McDonald's. And that just kind of blew my mind because I thought that athletes would basically eat healthy and not be eating at McDonald's and craving for French fries, especially when it's about 11 or 12 o'clock at night. A proper mental framework is important. And so you have some athletes who would hire and employ a sports psychologist. But there's something else that I learned that I wasn't really aware of, and that is that most sprinters, the elite sprinters, visualize their race before they run. It is before they actually get in the starting blocks when the uh, people in the stands are excited and looking forward to the race, a sprinter will visualize the race. And particularly like in the 200, they're visualizing coming out of the blocks, how they come out, how they're going to hit the curve, and how they're going to come off this the curve to the straightaway, and even get to the finish line. They visualize the race. And there aren't too many elite Olympic sprinters who do not follow that. Visualization of the race is crucial to them being successful. When it comes to the Christian walk, I'm not suggesting at all that visualization is important. But what visualization is to the elite sprinter, imitating and walking 
is to the Christian who wants to be successful before God. What visualization is to the sprinter, imitating and walking is to the child of God. We find ourselves in the book of Ephesians, and I just simply want to give you the flow because this book uh, in the first three chapters talks about the great salvation that is ours. Paul begins in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, by talking about the blessings of salvation that come from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he gets into some of the details. He talks about regeneration and reconciliation and revelation. And then when he gets to chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Now, in light of all that God has done for you, I want you to walk worthy of your calling. That is, I want you to walk worthy of your great salvation. And he tells these Christians at Ephesus what that means. That means to walk in unity. It also means to walk in holiness, that you don't live any longer like unbelievers live. But you put off those things. You put off lying and stealing and other things, and you walk like Christ walked. And then he's going to go on, even in chapter 5, and says, walk in light. Now walk in wisdom and walk in harmony. So Paul is concerned about the Christian's walk. And it's very easy that when you read through Ephesians, when you study this book, to forget verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. It's very easy to do that. But I want to suggest to you today that if we are going to be successful in our walk with God, then Imitating and walking is at the heart of our walk with God. If we're going to be elite, godly Christians, Christians who honor the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have to pay attention to what Paul says in these two verses about imitating and walking. And so I want us to look at these two verses with regards to what they have to say about these two important items. And as we come to verse 1, I want us to see that we are to imitate God. If we're going to understand imitating and its role in our lives, we need to unlock what Paul says in verse 1 about imitating God. At the very heart of verse 1 is the command to be or to become. And let me just put that command in its proper context by reading verse 1 again. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, as dearly loved children. Paul is concerned about these Christians' existence, their being. And so he's really just simply commanding them, be something, become something. And and what he wants them to be, what he wants them to become, are imitators. He wants them to become imitators so that when a person looks at their lives, when a person looks at our lives, that we are known as those who are continually and repeatedly 
known as imitators. And the word imitator in the Greek, it's not really important to point out what it is, but if you were to look at that Greek word and compare it to English, we get our word mimic. Mimic. That's what Paul is saying, that we have a responsibility. He says, I, I want you to be something. And what I want you to become, want you to be, what I want to characterize your life day in and day out is that you're a mimic, that you're a copycat, that you do these things that you see others do. And what is profound here is that he says, I want you to imitate God. I don't know if that hits you. Paul says, I want you to imitate God. He didn't say, I want you to imitate your best friend, our relative, our, our, our leader in the church. He says, I want you to imitate and become like God. That's who you are to mimic. That's who you are to copy, be a copycat of. That's the person that you are responsible for duplicating, so to speak. Don't mimic others, but the Christian imitation and imitating focuses in on the God of heaven and earth. And that's an unusual command. When it says be, be imitators of God, that's not your normal, typical command that Paul will give in his 13 letters that he has written. In fact, this is the only time that you'll find this command, be imitators of God. You'll hear Paul talking about imitating as a church, other churches, You'll hear Paul talking about imitating even Christ. You'll hear him sometimes talking about imitating himself. There are a couple of times where Paul commands his readers, imitate me. But he says, only do that as I imitate Christ. But nowhere except Ephesians 5.1 will you read the words of the command, imitate God. That is an unusual command. And when you think about it, the one that we are to imitate is the God of heaven and earth. So that's the command given to puny men and women to imitate the powerful, almighty God. It's the command that's given to weak individuals like you and me to, to somehow mimic, copy, replicate the one who is strong. I don't know about you, but that kind of command blows me out of the water. Me imitating God? Me imitating the infinite one when I'm finite in every part of my being? But yet here is Paul commanding these Christians, be, become imitators of God. 
mimic him, copy him, follow after him. Paul says, I'm not telling you here to imitate me. I'm telling you to imitate the God of heaven and earth. Anytime I hear that word mimic, I think about an incident that I probably shared before where I was taught a very, very valuable lesson about mimicking someone else. This is an an event that happened in my life, and I've never forgotten. It happened almost 60-plus years ago. I can remember my dad was alive, and my dad was driving his car on the Harbor Freeway going south, headed down to Miracle Baptist Church. My mom was in the front seat. I think my only sister, (laughs) I'll just say my only sister, was in the back seat. But something got into me. My dad and mom were having a conversation. And all of a sudden, my dad said something, and I decided I would say what he said. My dad said something else, and I mimicked him. And you know how foolishness is bound up in a child. I didn't say it a third time. It didn't get that far. I won't tell you what my dad did. Uh, All I know, he didn't say time out. Uh, He didn't pull the car over to the side and give me a lecture. Uh, He did something where it still etched in my mind that it ain't wise, Paul, for you to mimic your father the way that you did. I I still remember it today. So you you won't ever catch me trying to do that. But it is noteworthy that God wants us to mimic him. Now, God actually commands through Paul that we would mimic him and be his copycat. He's not saying be gods, but he says, I want you to be like me. And there are certain things that when it comes to God, we can never copy. We can never mimic. You know that God is omnipotent. That is, he's all powerful. There's nothing that he can't do. Last Sunday, we heard that he can do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we might ask or think. He can do it. But we don't have that ability to do all things. God is everywhere present at the same time. We call that his omniscience. I mean, his uh, um, omnipresence. He's everywhere present at the same time with his whole being. As he's with us here, he's with people in other churches, in other places. You and I are localized. We can only be here and nowhere else. So when Paul says, be imitators of God, he's not saying try to be like God in those areas. Those are the things that make God, God. And we'll never, ever be like him when it comes to his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence. We'll never be like him. But there are other areas in which we can be like God. And when you look at the context of this verse, Ephesians 5.1, if you look at the verse that preceded this, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Paul commanded his readers to become like God in forgiving one another. 
You see, there's a sense in which we can copy God. There is a sense in which we can mimic God. When it comes to those ethical characteristics and qualities of God, our God is an ethical God. And our God is compassionate. He's forgiving. He's tenderhearted. And Paul says, forgive one another. And some of you might need to hear that. That the word of God says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Paul says, as Christians, we can't be holding on to grudges. We, we can't be holding on to those burdens, those things that have caused us to not have the kind of harmonious relationship we should have. And sometimes those matters don't even get resolved. We don't even work it out. But Paul says, be kind to one another. Forgive each other. And you forgive each other how? Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Imitate God is what Paul is saying. Imitate God in forgiving others as opposed to holding on to a grudge for the rest of your life. Imitate God and forgive each other. And then we'll see in a moment in chapter 5, verse 2, the verse after the one we're looking at. Paul will say, walk in love. And in reality, what he's saying is, copy God, imitate God. How? By walking in love. And so we can't be like God in those attributes that set him apart from us, that make him God and God alone. But we can copy God and mimic God when it comes to his ethical qualities. So we are to become like God by being holy, by being righteous, by, by, by being gracious, by being compassionate, by demonstrating loving kindness and patience. Imitate God is what Paul is saying to these Christians at Ephesus. He's letting you know that if you're going to be successful in your walk with God, if you're going to be successful as a Christian, imitation of God has to be a part of your life. And you got to be imitating God, looking like God, seeking to reflect God's holiness, his righteousness, his compassion, his love, and the list goes on. B imitators of God when it comes to his ethical qualities. But we are to be imitators of God as beloved children. Don't miss the last part of verse 1. As beloved children, as God's children who are dearly loved. Once again, here we are in Ephesians, And we're reminded of this profound fact that God loves us. Paul says, imitate God as children. 
He's letting the believer know that you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. God is your father and you are his child. And that is an absolute amazing quality and description. Not everyone is the child of God. Don't let anyone fool you with regards to that. You have to repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation in order to be saved. And when God saves you, you become his child. As Paul says earlier in Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5, you've been adopted. You didn't naturally belong to the family of God. But when God saves you, he places you, he adopts you, he puts you as a son into his family. You're a child of God. And not only are you a child of God, not only does he refer to you as a child or children, but he stresses and describes the fact that you are beloved children. You're dearly loved children. It's more than just, I have this title, I have this position. But when it says that I'm dearly loved, it means I'm an active recipient of God's love day in and day out. And sometimes we don't even recognize it. Sometimes we don't even see it, but the reality is day in and day out from our existence as believers in Christ, God has been active in his love toward us. Dearly loved children. In chapter two, verse four, when Paul was talking about our great salvation, he says, speaks of God's love, his great love, not just love, his great love, his profound love, his mega love, which he poured out on us when he loved us. And Paul is looking at salvation. When we were dead in trespasses and sins and made alive in Christ, he said, God did that. He made that happen. He made you alive. He raised you up. He seated you in the heavenlies. It's a demonstration of his great mega love with which he loved us, Paul says. And so here Paul is saying, I want you to imitate God. And it's only reasonable, it's only rational that you imitate him because you're his child. You're his child and he's your father. In a normal family, Parents want their kids to imitate them, to be like them. Our child might want to be like Mike and be like this and be like that. But a parent takes great joy when their child is like the mother or the father. God reminds us, you're my child, member of Fairview. You're my child, Christian. And you ought to want to imitate me. You ought to want to reflect me. You ought to want to copy my ethical qualities. 
You ought to want to be compassionate and kind and loving and holy and righteous, etc. Imitate me. You're my children. And you're not just simply a part of my family, but I continually and regularly pour out my love toward you. My love toward you is seen each and every day if you will look close enough. So imitating is at the heart of Christian living. Imitating God. It's essential. You you can't be an elite godly Christian and ignore the concept of imitating. But there's something else that's important, and that is walking. And the idea of walking is unfolded to us in verse 2, when Paul gives the command, walk in love. Basically, what he's simply saying is, walk. (laughs) Walk. And obviously, he's not saying, I want you to walk physically. He's not saying, get up, walk. No, he's saying walk figuratively, walk spiritually. Again, look at verse 2 so we can put this command to walk in its proper context. Paul says, and walk in love just as Christ also loved us. Some translations say you, but loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The command is walk. And this is one of the words that Paul loves to use. Prior to this verse, he's used it five times. He mentioned in chapter 2, verse 2, that we used to walk according to the world and the devil. Did you know that? Before you got saved, before I got saved, the standard of my behavior, I walked according to the world system. And I walk according to the one who's the head of the world system, the devil. That's how we used to walk. But but we got saved. God saved us. And so Paul can say in chapter 2, verse 10, that we are to walk in the good works that God has prepared for us. Do you know that God has mapped out your life for you? That God has good works designed for you? And Paul says, God wants you to walk in those good works. He doesn't want you doing your own thing, what you think is best. God said, I got some plans for your life. And now that you're saved by grace through faith, walk in those good works. We come to chapter 4, verse 1. We are commanded to walk. How? According to our salvation in a manner worthy of our salvation. And then in chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says, 
don't walk like unbelievers. Some of us think the standard is unbelievers. Paul said, no, don't walk like unbelievers. Walk. They got their lifestyle. They got their pattern. Don't follow their pattern. And so now he comes in verse 2 in chapter 5 and says, walk. He uses his favorite word, walk. Conduct yourselves. Behave. Live is what he's talking about. And he's saying, I want you to walk, conduct yourselves, behave. I want you to live. The Christian life is a life of living. And he says, I want you to walk in a particular realm. And that is walk and live in love. That's the sphere, the sphere in which we live our lives. That's the room, the environment in which we walk around. We walk around in old-fashioned Christian love where we seek the best possible good for the other individual. He's not talking about our love for God, even though that is important. We're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But here, he's talking about our love for each other, our love for one another as Christians. He says, I want you to walk in this room, in this environment, in this sphere, where you love one another, where you seek each other's best possible good. And it's not as if they never, ever walked in this realm. When we looked at Paul's first prayer in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, Paul says, I've heard regarding your faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and I've also heard how you love one another. What a report. What a testimony. I wonder what people hear about Fairview. I wonder if people are hearing, here's a church that loves one another. That's what God wants. And that's what Paul wants for these Christians at Ephesus. That's what God wants for them. Not just for them to be saved and to go to heaven. He wants them to exist in the realm, in the sphere, in the environment where they're loving one another. That's the command. Walk in love. In the standard. In the measuring rod. For their walk in love toward one another is none other than Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, all eyes on Jesus Christ. If you're going to walk in love, if you're going to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, your eyes must be fixed upon the ultimate lover, the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of us are groping. We're walking around, flailing uh, in this, quote, environment of trying to love each other. And, and we're not looking to Jesus. We're treating each other like we see others treat us. We, we, we play that, no, you did this to me, I'm going to do this to you. 
Paul said, throw that out the window. When you're walking in love toward one another, keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. Focus on him. Husbands, focus on Christ when it comes to loving your wife. Wives, I'm not even going to talk about submission. I'm just going to say, love your husband and and keep your eyes on him. Don't, Don't keep your eyes on the people at the beauty shop. Men, don't follow those guys who don't have a wife, who are trying to cut your hair and know nothing about love. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Church members, don't be talking about church hurt and what people have done to you. Keep your eyes on Jesus and love one another with your eyes on him. He's our standard. You want to know what it means to love? Zero in on Christ. And in particular, zero in on how Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You want to know what Christian love looks like, meditate, chew on, think, reflect upon the the fact that Paul says in the last part of verse two that Christ also loved us and that Christ gave himself up for us. Zero in on Christ's love and Christ's sacrifice, which is the epitome of his love. This expression that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, again, shouldn't be new to us at Fairview when we talked about the husband redeeming marriage. He's to redeem marriage by loving his wife. As Paul will say later on in this chapter in verse verse 25, redeeming his wife, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loved the church and Christ gave himself up for the church. Paul is now saying that Christ loves us and gave himself up for us. In Galatians 2.20, he makes it even more personal. He said, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. He loved me and gave himself up for me, Paul said. Paul said, I'm not going to testify what he's done for you but I'll say that he loved me personally and he gave himself up for me personally. Paul says, you want to know what it is to love one another, to walk in love? Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on the fact that Christ loved us. I I could spend a lot of time here, but I won't. I'll just remind us 
that if we're going to be faithful to the text, Paul says that Christ also loved us. And what he's pointing out, what he's stressing, is not only does Christ love us, not only did Christ love us, but guess what? Someone else also loved us. And you know who the other one who loved us is? It's God. Those of you who are his dearly beloved children, he he loves you. God loves you. Christ loves you. In all of your wickedness, your evilness, your sinfulness, in your rebellion, in you choosing to live life your own way, Christian, when you fail to live and honor God, keep in mind he loves you. God loves you. Christ loves you. And that's a wonderful truth. Some of us are struggling. We wonder, does anybody love me? The husband might be wondering, does my wife love me? My wife might be saying, does my husband love me? Single person might be asking, does anybody love me? Can I find anybody? You might not. And you might be in a marriage where the husband doesn't love his wife like he should. And the wife doesn't love the husband like she should. But I'm just here to tell you that there is one whose love you can always count on. Christ loved us and continues to love us. When when, when everyone has deserted us, when no one is around, when no one seems to care about what you're going through, understand and realize, come to grips with the fact that Christ loved you. Paul puts it in the past tense because really what he's going to talk about is the cross. The Christ loved us. And we know that Christ's love for us is hard to comprehend. But still we pray and ask God, God, strengthen me, enable me to know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. To, to know that love which surpasses all knowledge. There is so much for us to understand and to grasp and to make a part of our life when it comes to Christ loved us. But Paul doesn't simply say that Christ loved us, but he says that Christ gave himself up for us. That's the cross. That's the cross. If you ever wonder or doubt, child of God, if Christ loves you, open up your Bible. Go to the cross. Go to those passages that speak of the death of Jesus Christ for you. No no ifs, ands, buts about it. Paul said, I don't have to get into a dialogue. I don't have to get into debate. Christ loved us. Us and Christ 
gave himself up for us. And that's just terminology for the cross of Christ, where Christ dies on the cross. And Paul is not even dealing with him dying for the whole world. Paul just said, it's sweet to me. He's died for us. Christians, he's died for us. And you can debate theologically, who did he die? Paul says here, he died for us. And just be happy and rejoice, be satisfied, be glad in the fact that he died for us and gave himself up for us. He gave. That's at the heart of what he did on the cross. He gave. He delivered. He handed over. Not an angel. Not an animal. But himself. The the God of heaven and earth. The eternal son of God left heaven's glory. And was conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. and, And lived a perfect life. And they nailed him to the cross. They killed him on the cross. And he did it for us. He handed himself over. He delivered himself. He gave himself. Himself. That's how much he loves you. He didn't say, I'm going to show you my love by sending someone else to do that. Even an angelic being or an animal sacrifice like we had in the... No. Himself he gave. And he gave himself for us. That's the good news. In in our place, for our benefit, so that you and I can have eternal life. He gave himself for us. And he gave himself as an offering and sacrifice. And that's just terminology for looking at the death of Christ through the eyes of Old Testament sacrifices. You go back to Leviticus and you read all those different offerings, those animal sacrifices, etc. But here is Christ's death on the cross being viewed as an offering and as a sacrifice. He is the ultimate fulfillment of all sacrifices that pointing to him in the Old Testament. And that's why John the Baptist, when he saw him, said, what? Behold, behold what? The Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away sin. The Lord Jesus Christ was the ultimate sacrificial lamb. An offering, a sacrifice. To who? To God. And not only to God, but as a fragrant aroma. And again, that's Old Testament terminology. Only time we talk about a fragrant aroma is if Deacon Ed is cooking some barbecue. No, walk by and we smell that. It's a fragrant aroma, a a sweet smell in the nostrils, wetting the appetite. But here, the death of Christ on Calvary's cross is pictured as a fragrant aroma 
a, a sweet smell from the sacrifice that goes up into the nostrils of God. And he smells and he says, I'm pleased. I'm satisfied. My holy and righteous demands have been met in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He's satisfaction to God, the holy God, for our sins. I'm pleased. God doesn't look at the cross and says, I'm disappointed. I'm mad. God looks at the cross and says, I'm satisfied. I'm pleased. I'm pleased. Paul has provided us with a wondrous survey of the cross. We sing that song sometimes. When I survey the wondrous cross of Jesus, on which the prince of peace of glory, the prince of glory died. When I survey that cross, that's what Paul has been doing here. You want the cross in miniature? Go back to Ephesians 5.2 and read these words. Think about these words. Reflect on the word. Paul is surveying the cross. And Isaac Watts, who wrote that hymn, said that the bottom line is, what, how, how do we respond? How do we respond when we survey the cross? He says, love so amazing. Oh, it is amazing that he would love me like that. Love so amazing and so divine. But he doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with praise. It doesn't stop with honor being given to that love. But he goes on to say, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's what the cross demands of us. It demands my life, my soul, my, my all. How can we, in the light of the cross, keep our lives for ourselves and not surrender everything to him? When you survey the cross, the only proper response is that it demands your life. Your soul, your all in all. And so Paul says, walk in love. And may we walk in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us. May there be a denial of ourselves when it comes to loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. May there be even a sacrifice when we seek to love one another. So that in the words of 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, we know love by this, that Christ laid down his life for us. And what should we do? Christ laid down his life for us. And what should we do? 1 John 3, 16, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. When we walk in love, when we love one another, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, that means that we don't just talk love, but we walk in love. We, we can talk in love, 
But, but 1 John 3.18 says we are to love, not in word or with tongue. You know, no, we just love people with our lips and our tongues. But he says, no, we are to love each other indeed in truth. So as we exist and as we live, may imitating and walking be at the heart of our Christian life. And there's a desperate need for Christians like this. Christians who imitate God and Christians who walk in love. These kind of Christians are needed in our marriages, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our churches, in our schools, at our jobs, and even in our churches. Instead of us trying to be like the elite athlete who's a sprinter and visualize the race before us, what we need to do is see how important imitating and walking is to being a godly Christian. May God help you to imitate him and to walk in love. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to see how important, how crucial, how essential imitating and walking is to a successful, God-honoring Christian life. We commit ourselves to you and ask that you would grant us the grace to be the people that you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.